Hello, welcome again to another episode of the Let Fuel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today we have another person who's just a great liberty warrior, someone who's always happy and optimistic, maybe not always about the future, but there are reasons <laughs> to be optimistic all the time. And there's a lot of good things that we need to talk about. And it's none other than Hannah Cox. Hannah, welcome to Let Fuel Prosper Show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. Been following your work for a number of years now, and um, you always do a lot of great, great things. For the audience, let me go ahead and um, read your bio, and then we'll jump right in. So Hannah Cox is a prominent libertarian writer, commentator, activist, and the co-founder of Based Politics, which you can find at Based dash politics.com cox has an extensive resume that began with five years working in nashville's music industry interning for taylor swift's management coordinating red carpets and overseeing promotional campaigns after witnessing the numerous ways the government was actively harming people cox decided to give up music for a career in public policy and activism and she hasn't slowed down since cox launched her show based in 2020 during the pandemic with a passion for teaching people how to think not what to think we see that so much in education. <laughs> she was convinced after her years of successfully passing legislation with the support of both Democrats and Republicans that Americans are not as far apart as we think. So true. In 2021, Cox partnered with her friend and colleague, Brad Palumbo, who's awesome. Y'all should go check him out as well, to expand the base brand into a full-fledged multimedia content hub where they use new media to, con to continue driving real-world policy outcomes via education and awareness. She's a frequent guest on Fox News. She was on Fox Business's Kennedy program numerous times, and her work is commonly cited by lawmakers and leaders across the political spectrum. A lot of great work, Hannah. I'm really excited to talk to you today. And so the first question I ask all my audience members is, what motivates you to do what you do each day? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think being in politics, you have to have one of two things driving you. Either you really, really hate injustice and oppression, or you're really out for yourself, right? They are two yeah. like polarizing kind of ways that people go into politics. And I'm in the first camp. I cannot stand a bully. I've been this way my whole life. I've always said one of my best skill sets is being able to out bully a bully. So I've always been somebody like on the playground that would jump in and protect the little guy that was getting picked on and, and just slam down the other guy that was bullying him. So I think that's kind of how I see my role in the political sector. I see the government as a gigantic bully that is oppressing people, that is perpetrating tons of injustice, that has done more to harm humanity than any other source I can point to. And I'm angry about it. So <laughs> I wake up propelled by anger. It's it's funny, you mentioned this at the top of the show and I often have people online say, you're such a happy warrior. And I'm like, I think I'm a pretty pissed off warrior, but <laughs> either way, we get the same results. So I, I think that's what drives me. I have a real desire to right wrongs, to protect people who I think I see as having less ability to stand up for themselves than I do. You know, I hate I hate the term privilege, but for lack of a better term, I think I have felt very privileged throughout my life. I feel very strong. I have a good family behind me. I, you know, am middle class. Like I am uh, not a minority. I haven't been, you know, particularly oppressed by the government and, and my demographics, other than I guess being a woman. But I, I feel like I have these positionings in my life to where I am better able to stand up against some of the people in power than others. So I guess I feel a duty to do that. Yeah, no, that's great, Hannah. And, and um, you're also a Christian, right? Mm -hmm. you, you talk about that often, that 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 Absolutely. sort of, yeah, that, that faith, 
you know, gives us a lot of optimism as well, whenever everything else can look pretty dire <laughs> as I, you know, I'm a Christian right. as well. And um, so I think that's important. And and what is your path to get here? We talked about some of those things, you know, with Taylor Swift and the music industry and then getting into public policy, but you know, what else would you expand on about your, your career so far? Yeah. I have a lot of people ask me all the time, like, what do I go to school for to do what you do? And I'm like, I, I have no idea what to tell you because I didn't <laughs> go to school <laughs> to do what I do. I was a singer songwriter. I was a performer most of my life. So I was definitely a Bleak. Um, and I went to Nashville, I went to Belmont University, which is a very big, formerly Southern Baptist Christian school itself, but very big music school that's right on Music Row. And it's, it's a very unique kind of college experience. It's one of the top two music colleges in the country. And so I got a business degree, a music business degree. So I, I still took all the courses you would if you were getting a traditional BBA. But you also take a lot of additional courses where you're looking at things like contract law, artist management, public relations, and then you're interning on Music Row. You're often, you know, having opportunities like I did where I started running a large student organization my sophomore year that staffed red carpets and award shows. So I was coordinating those events, overseeing the staff from within our student body that were working those events. And so it's just a really unique college experience, unlike any other. So I had five years out of college, three years in, so eight years total, hard time on Music Row. And I, you know, I'm really glad I did it. I'm, I'm so glad I got out of my system. I did get really cool experiences that I don't know how else you would, you know, I started interning for Taylor Swift when she was still on her first album. It's a really tiny label at the time called Big Machine Records. And I remember all the upperclassmen making fun of me and being like, you're an idiot for not interning at Sony or one of the majors. And I was like, no, like, I think this is where it's going. Right. So I had a good eye for the market. And, yeah. um, and so, yeah, I interned for her management and then for her A&R. And then I ended up doing some publishing internships and you know, I got to coordinate the Grammys red carpet. Like I just got to be in these spaces that were really unique and cool. And then I also was performing at the same time, but working in the entertainment industry is really difficult. And I often have people joke with me when I say, you know, it was a terrible environment. And they're like, you went to politics. I'm like, yeah, that's how bad music was. <laughs> like, it, was it really was not great. You know, just the environment that you're in, you're around a lot of like hard living. You're around a lot of people, I think that are just deeply unhappy at the end of the day. And as a performer, I didn't, you know, the thing that drew me to being a performer was I really liked the ability to connect with people. I was a songwriter. I liked being able to write lyrics that help people understand their life better or the world better or uplift them or connect with them. And so as I was, you know, going about that, I realized you really don't have that much autonomy as your rank and file artist to even decide what you're going to record. It's especially hard for women in country music. They're just not as friendly to female artists. They don't do as well on the charts. So there was a lot of barriers. And I remember looking around at one point and just thinking, you know, I can stay in this and maybe I'll make it. I'm good. I didn't really think I was great. Or, you know, there's other things I could do to get that same synergy of connecting with people and helping them. I have so many other interests and things I'm good at. I don't have to do this. And so I sort of made a concerted choice shortly after I graduated to start pivoting. But to be honest, it was kind of like losing your religion. You know, when you're so invested in something like performing your whole life, everything you've done is to get to that moment. Every lesson I took, every performance I did, like that was everything I knew. Yeah. So I did end up working in the music industry for five additional years. I worked at Entertainment One, which is a big, mostly TV and film company, actually, but they also have music divisions. And so during that time, I kind of was having to pivot and figure out like, what's next? You know, how do I pivot? How do I move into another industry? And I really felt like I was sort of stabbing around the dark for a good bit, but I knew that I really was interested in the law. Um, a lot of people had told me I should look at going to be a lawyer. 
And then I knew I was really interested in um, psychology. I thought maybe being a therapist was something that I would like. And so I thought before I go back to school and take on more student debt, <laughs> I need to make sure I really like whatever I picked this time around and don't you know miscalculate again. So I started working on the side, sort of as an apprentice, I guess, for lack of a better term, in both industries, just trying to sort of feel my way around and see what I liked, what I gravitated towards. I started working for a lawyer on the side in Tennessee who actually ran something called the Tennessee Firearms Association. And I was like, well, I like the Second Amendment and, you know, I'll get to see what his day-to-day -day is like. This is great. And then I also started volunteering at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I actually went in to answer like the suicide hotline, but they saw that I was working for the Second Amendment group and they said, oh, you have political experience. We can't afford a lobbyist. Could you lobby for us? And I was like, I don't really know what a lobbyist does, but I could probably figure that out. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I started working as a pro bono lobbyist for huh. NAMI. And so it was interesting how like both of those paths ended up pointing me into politics ultimately. And so as I was doing both things, I really fell in love with public policy. I, you know, found that that was a way to not only connect with people, but to help them and to improve the world. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I first, you know, got my foot in the door. And then I kept doing stuff on the side for two years, just trying to build my way into another career, which is not easy. I didn't have yeah. any connections. I was in Nashville, so there weren't a ton of political jobs even, but I was able to, after about two and a half years, build my way into a job with the Beacon Center of Tennessee, which is the only libertarian think tank in the state to my knowledge. And so, yeah, that began my full-time journey. Wow. That's awesome. And then you, you worked for FEE, Foundation for Economic Education for a while, and then uh, based politics now. It's it, it's quite fascinating, you know, um, and, and it's a good lesson for those that in the audience of you follow your dreams. And you know, you don't know exactly what those dreams are going to be. Hannah, you may or may not know, but I I, also, I play the drums. And no um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I played in a hard rock band uh, in my late 20s or late teens, probably the late 90s, early 2000s, um, okay. where I used to like dye my hair black and like have black tips. I had 10 gauge earrings in both ears and um, we used to rock out. <laughs> oh my gosh, we need a photo of this. Like, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, but I got in a, a really bad car accident. We rolled six times. I got life flight to a hospital and it was really by the grace of God, like that I, I survived, but it was a big turning point. I'm like, cause I was living quote unquote, the rock star life. I'll just leave it that way. Okay. And, and, and it turned my life around to where I was a first generation college student, got a PhD in economics. And then, you know, cause I really felt to let people prosper was like my God-given calling to where it's a, it's phenomenal today to get to do like the things that I do. But I, but I get your point. Like you see this one direction you're heading and it's like, okay, everything comes together and then you get to do what you really are, I think, meant to do at this point in time. And so it, it's quite fascinating to hear your story. I, I love it. Um, oh, I love that. There's so many people I've noticed in our industry that have a musical background. So at some yeah. point we're going to put together like some kind of a band. But yeah, I love that point. My first little solo I ever did when I was six years old was a song called God Has a Plan for My Life. Huh. And I, I wow. absolutely think that's true. I think that God works all things together for good and that, you know, if you just keep pursuing your interests and the things that are on your heart, you might not end up where you think you're going to, but you'll certainly end up where you're supposed to be. And yeah you know, if you're open to being used in that way. And I think, you know, that seems to be true for both of us. We ended up in spots where you're able to use your God-given talents to accomplish things that are bigger than yourself. So just take one step after the next and work really hard. I mean, that's that's yeah. always the best advice I have for anybody that wants to achieve anything. But certainly when I get asked about how to get into media or how to get into politics, I'm, I'm just like, I don't know that there's one certain pathway to doing that. I know I worked exceptionally hard and like I took every opportunity I had. And I think if you do those things, it will build over time.
Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's not easy, <laughs> but those things that we want to do aren't easy. You got to keep pushing yourself and finding new things and new opportunities. So I wish you nothing but success in your new new business venture you have going on. But let's talk about some policy now. You know, I think that's all some good stuff there. And you also um, have been writing and doing podcasts and TikToks and other things for a long time and um, got a good following, which is great. And, and you've really been working hard at this. You know, we can talk about a lot of things and, and, I, and I want to, but I, I, let's start off with some antitrust. And I think this is something that's, you know, not people understand a whole lot or <laughs> most people think that antitrust is a good thing. That the Sherman Act was great and then and Sandwich Antitrust Act was great and that, you know, the government should step in and everything else. But I, I wonder what what's your take, Hannah, on what's going on with antitrust and, and, and maybe just a little bit background on it. Yeah, antitrust is one of those subjects that I feel most people never look into until you have to for work. And that was <laughs> yeah. for me. I don't know that I could have definitionally even told you what antitrust was until a couple of years ago. It's one of those dry sort of wonky areas, or at least that's what I thought before I got into it. But um, once I was asked to start looking into it, I got really high key hyped on it. So now I love antitrust. It's one of my favorite subjects. And I think one reason I really like it is it gets to the root of a problem that I see in politics and economic discussions across the board, where we're using the same words, but they have very different meanings and we lack a common definition and or the people who are using these words are using them disingenuously and they have an ulterior motive or agenda behind the scenes. So with antitrust, the reason people tend to think it's a good thing is it's, it's purported to be in place to protect capitalism, right? To ensure that there is competition, to make sure that we don't have monopolies, all of those things sound good to anybody. And you know, even with the growth of progressivism in this country, if you talk to the rank and file Democrat, to this day, they'll say they support capitalism. Your rank and file Republican says, I support capitalism. So when you have leaders saying, we're looking out for capitalism and they're pushing antitrust, it looks like that's what they're doing. That's not what they're doing. <laughs> it's nothing no. to do with what they're doing. It's actually one of the biggest impediments on capitalism I can point to throughout our nation's history. And I think first you have to get into the fact of like, what do they define as a monopoly? And when you get into it, you'll realize very quickly that most of the time when they are using antitrust against a company, it is in no way a monopoly. It's in the things that are monopolies are almost always propped up by the government, yet you don't hear them talking about that, right? When they're talking about monopolies, you don't hear them talking about certificate of need laws that basically give a single company in every state almost unilateral control of the healthcare market. You don't hear them talking about the Jones Act that gives you know, American shipyards unilateral control over shipping between ports, right? These are actual monopolies that are created by government policy, yet that's never what's being targeted. Instead, we usually see them going after whatever the top companies are of the day, whatever the top sectors are of the day. And that's certainly been true lately where we see tech has fallen squarely within their targets on both the left and right. And they're both mad at it for various reasons, right? Like the right wants tech to uh, censor less and promote their views more. The left wants it to censor more and shut down the other guy. And so they're actually coming together on this to take more control of the free market, to give the government more power over the tech sector. And their weapon to do that through is antitrust. And I think the brilliant scheme they have going on behind the scenes is they can tell you we're using antitrust to make sure there's no monopolies and to protect capitalism. But really what they're doing is using it to threaten companies and say, if you don't behave as we want you to in this way, if you don't run your business like this, then we're going to use antitrust against you and come in and break up your company. And so it's this very corrupt way of controlling the market and taking you know, a bit of the free market away from the tech sector or various industries they're targeted at 
and making them fall under government control without even having to pass a law. And so it's this brilliant little loophole for them, because if you pass a law to do some of what they're doing, well, then the company could easily sue over it. They could get some you know, refuge in the courts. They could take it to the public. They could try to overturn it. When you just have these vague threats behind the scenes, what's, what's your recourse as a company when they're using that? And so that's essentially how Amazon, I mean, Amazon, how antitrust has mostly been used. We see they're about to try to do this to Amazon, which is why they're on the top of my mind when we're talking about this. But I think it's a very, very corrupt thing. And as I, you know, I wrote an in-depth piece about this for based a while back, but I, I don't think antitrust is about competition. I think it's about control. And I think it's an anti-capitalist policy at root. Yep. And is that the piece, the capitalist case against antitrust laws? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be sure to put that on the show notes page, advancedscan.com or advancedscan.substack.com uh, for the audience. And and, and it's, it's a great piece. And there's another one um, that Hannah has out recently, Are We About to Lose Amazon? We're recording this on August 21st, 2023. Um, this was from August 16th. Yeah, August 16th, 2023. So she's been writing about this for a while. And, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, it goes back to there's our good intentions with this law to make sure that monopolies, one individual company doesn't have much as much control over that marketplace and doesn't disenfranchise or hurt the consumer in the process. But the problem is, uh, as Milton Friedman said, we don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results. And the results are, are not good. When you look at these antitrust push and endeavors over time, you're right. It's more about government control over the marketplace to get the outcomes that they want versus what the people want. Because ultimately, in my view, Hannah, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about market failure, right? And the market's failing somehow to bring about the right prices and the quality of products and everything else. And and then who's the, what's the solution? Well, it's it's more government, right? We, or, or it's government going to come in and solve this market failure. The, the problem is to me, and you picked up on this quite well, was that it's really government failure. <laughs> government failure is usually what's the behind what's going on. And, and that's where people look at this from the surface level and they say, okay, it's this business, it's Amazon or um, Apple or whoever it is they want to point at who they don't like as much at that point in time, that they're the bad guys and government is the good guys. And it's like, no, government has a lot of problems. They have different incentives throughout their decision-making process, in probably choice economics, right? Where they need to get reelected. And so they go out and they pick out these rent seekers and everything else. And it distorts the overall problem because if, if there is one producer who is dominating the market, let's think about why. Well, maybe it's because the consumers really like their product. Maybe they provide a good price in the process as well. What's so wrong about that? Well, it's greedflation. It, it, these companies are coming up with inflation, which is baloney. You know, that comes from the Fed and the Congress spending too much and the Fed printing all this money. But they really want to focus on these factors. And it's just it, it's mind blowing to some extent. But I, I'm glad that you're providing this information um, to say, look, there's a problem here. And, and and but whenever you go and talk to folks across the country about this, what kind of pushback do you get? You know, I really I wouldn't say I get a lot of pushback. I okay. think there's the general lack of understanding. And so when we have the opening to discuss it, I think it's just very eye-opening to people and they can readily see the corruption behind it. Um, I think that the the problem that we've had is that right now, you know, talking about antitrust in this moment, the companies that they're trying to utilize it against have some issues, some some PR issues, right, on both the left and the right. I think there's a lot of populist sentiments on both sides that I mm. find disturbing where the there's just this like hatred of success in this yeah. country that's in, it's creeping in on the right too. And it's disturbing where they have this perception of big is bad, right? If something's big, it's bad. And 
like you said, usually if something's really big, it's because it's very popular. Amazon has hundreds of millions of users and it is consistently polling as one of the most favorable companies out there. And it's it's in no way a monopoly, right? You can have products delivered to your door by just about any company out there at the moment. There's plenty of other aggregate sellers. So it's not that, it's that they are delivering a product at a very good price that most people like and are very happy with. So that if we are going to have antitrust, that should be the standard that we're using to evaluate, right? Is a company actually a monopoly and is it hurting people? <laughs> yes. Or are consumers happy? And that's, you know, that's been baked into our legal precedent, thank God, since the 1980s, which is why you have seen fewer antitrust cases succeed because those conditions are very rarely met. But you have this new crop of lawmakers and bureaucrats who are trying to get rid of that, trying to overturn the consumer welfare standard. They're trying to do it through lawsuits at the FTC, and they're trying to do it through legislation that people like Amy Klobuchar and Josh Hawley are introducing. And so it, it really is a time of trepidation if you are a private business for what's going to ultimately happen with some of those standards that we've used to evaluate these things for some time. Um, and I think ultimately it, it is about the government trying to take more control of the market. I think that if they are successful in this, you actually will see less competition. You know, the free market is it, very good at dealing with monopolies if and when they do happen to exist. They, they rarely do and they rarely exist for very long unless you have some kind of corrupt government policy or regulation backing them up. And so when it comes to some of these companies, like I'll use Facebook as an example because everybody's been very mad at Facebook over the past couple of years. Yeah. But, you know, they they had this idea of like you can't compete with Facebook. It's just top of the game that nobody can come in and undercut it, that, you know, their policies are detrimental. Again, the left wants them to censor people more. The right wants them to censor people less. But the reality is Facebook has been at the top of the tech sector for, what, a decade? That's not that long. And if right. you look at what were the top tech companies a decade ago, a lot of them are just nowhere to be found these days. You know, BlackBerry dominated the market until one day iPhone came along and iPhone dominates and until something else comes along. So I think there is this need people, um, people need to sit back and understand, like you have to give the free market time to work and let it shake these things out. And if a company is truly not doing a good job and consumers are wildly unhappy with it, something else is going to come along and undercut them. And I would argue even right now, we see TikTok eating Facebook up right? Like, are they, are they over Facebook yet? But no, not quite, but like they are, they're going to be, they are rapidly approaching that point. They are, they're dominating the younger market. Like, you know, Facebook for my age demographic, I get on there now, it feels like a ghost town. I mean, there's, there's nothing happening. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that if you do have an issue with these companies, if you truly are a capitalist and you truly believe in the market, then you need to sit back and give those forces time to work. Versus that the slightest issue you have with a business or its operation turning to the government and trying to give it more power just because you're mad at a company the way it, it does business. Yeah, I love the way you put that. And um, I, I just released a paper with the Pelican Institute, Antitrust and Enforcement, Letting Markets Work Without Empowering Government, which kind of goes into all this uh, as, as well of the consumer welfare standard, how that sets such an important precedent for so long. And, and basically, it's just saying, what's the value you're getting for this good or service, mainly goods above the price? It's kind of in, in economic terms, it's the consumer surplus and whether or not that's increasing or decreasing. And you can measure it in different ways. Um, but but you're exactly right. Whenever I think about monopolies, uh, my mind actually goes more towards government monopolies, monopolies, right? Like utilities. And, and even if you think about some of the monopolies that have, that have existed or 
theoretically existed. You, you got to look behind the curtain of what actually was going on. A lot of it was regulatory capture. Like you talked about occupational licensing earlier, that these, these monopolies are, are really created by government. And so adding more government into it doesn't solve a problem. Two wrongs, my, my mama taught me, you know, that two wrongs don't make a right, you know? And um, whenever I'm thinking about these things, that's what I see so much from a lot of the left, but also a lot on the right nowadays are willing to put more government in to this process and um, and try to solve the problem whenever I think that they're they're not looking at the root of the problem. The root of the problem is usually too much government, whether it be in education, whether it be in healthcare, the utility systems that they're determining which resources we're going to use, where it's reliable or unreliable sources of energy and everything else. And, and, and we're talking about tech right now, but but what's also maybe propping some of them up along the way? I don't believe it's the Section 230. I know you've written about this as well. But some have even said we need to change Section 230 or we need to do something else. And, and it's like, no, just let the market forces work. Because remember, not like you said a decade ago, what was it? Like MySpace? And it, wait, go ahead. No, you're right. It was MySpace. Yeah, yeah it was MySpace. <laughs> and, and now I don't know that anyone's on MySpace. Is it even round anymore? I don't even know how you get on MySpace these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and so these things do change. It's it's dynamic, and we we live in a dynamic world that people want it to be static, and they can, you know, change, fine tune the economy. You know, Hannah, I have a, a lot of other like, economists on and stuff, and we'll talk about the economy in general, and fiscal policy, and monetary policy, and and so many of them are like, you know, they just get, need to get government out of the way. That that it's not like Keynes talked about or Marx wanted where you can come in and fine tune the economy, just turn this knob and turn that knob and everything will be okay. That That's not how we work. We're human beings that are social people that need to, to have exchanges with one another. And what we need to do is get government out of the way so they can have those exchanges. And it's, so it's, it's frightening sometimes when I see Lena Khan, um, the Department of Justice come in with these antitrust policies. And then the way the Biden administration just talks about it in, in general, but I should I would be remiss if I didn't say that you know, look, I worked in the Trump administration for about a year as the chief economist with Office of Management and Budget. And even out of the Trump administration, there was a lot of talk about antitrust and, and other things. So it, it's Democrat and Republican problem. And that's probably what you've seen across the country, right? Yeah, I think that is what makes it concerning is you see Democrats and Republicans on these bills, which, you know, that means there's a better chance of them succeeding ultimately. So I yeah. do think that it's concerning. I feel like, you know, I come from the right. I don't consider myself a Republican anymore, but I come from the right. So I am more critical of the right many times because I expect more out of them, you know, like Democrats. They don't really profess to have these principles that the right does. Meanwhile, the right wants to claim that it's about limited government, that it's about individual liberty, that it's about free market capitalism. And I think they've done more to send us you know, down the river than the Democrats have because they claim to value these things. And then behind the scenes, their, their policies don't add up. They don't wash. And so that's been true my entire lifetime. But recently, I think it's gotten much worse because now you have this whole generation of Republicans where they're just angry and they just want to like get back at the other side and they want to use the government as a weapon to beat back the people that they dislike. And so it's really, you know, you have now two coins with the same side. Like the, I can't tell any difference if you flip it, right? Like who are we getting here when it comes to the policies that you're advancing? And I, I think that's very troubling because if you don't have these underlying principles that you are moored to as a party, um, then I think you know, F.A. Hayek described progressivism as a train that's going off the tracks, heading off a cliff, and that conservatism was merely the brakes. 
the brakes are out in that case, um, and there is no alternate track, right? We need to get on alternate track, which would be classical liberalism or libertarianism in mine and his opinions. But yeah, I, I think that it's it's scary because we need a strong second party or entity that can oppose where the left is going with its progressive economics and just how big it wants to make the government, how all seen and consuming it would like to see the federal government become. The right in trying to use the government as a weapon is enabling more of that. And they they are very, very short-sighted in many of the things that they are clamoring for right now, antitrust just being one of those examples. But you know, if you use antitrust and you change the standards by which we use it to go after companies that you're mad at, guess what? It can also be used to go after companies that you like. And so it, it really, to me, is just bottom barrel politicking. Yes. Yep. And, and, and I mean, there's there's a voter base or they wouldn't be doing it, right? Because they, they need to win votes at the end of the day. And it, it is unfortunate. I mean, we've seen kind of the rise of the national, quote unquote, national conservatism that's been coming out. I, I was one of the first signatories of the freedom conservatives, uh, freedom conservatism and, and, and kind of pushing back on this view uh, that we need more government in different areas, whether it be an antitrust or industrial policy. That's been the big key word here recently. Like, are we serious? Are, are we really thinking that we need to get industrial policy, the government to put their thumb on the scale of what the market wants? Th this, this, this goes against Adam Smith. It goes against everything that we've known. And in the founding fathers, I mean, yes, you had Hamiltonians and Hamilton wanted a, a strong central bank and these sort of things. But I, I fall more on the Jeffersonian part of that to where, you know, we need to be careful about how much government comes in because I had Matt, Matt Mitchell on. Actually, the, the podcast was released today on the Let People Prosper show on August 21st. But we talked a lot about trust. And, and trust in the marketplace and, and free market capitalism is so important. And, and it, it brings us together because we don't need to know whether or not we're going to pay for a meal whenever we go in at a, our favorite restaurant. The, 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 the person who's giving us the meal knows that there's trust that we're going to pay at the end. That's how capitalism works. Socialism and these other types of policies that come in, there's lack of trust. They don't trust the people to do what's going to be best. And so they need, and you mentioned this earlier, that sometimes capitalism takes too long. And, and so from the right and the left, they'll be like, oh, we can't wait that long. We've got to do it now. But now you are determining the actions, the volunteer, quote unquote, voluntary transactions that are happening in the marketplace. And this is why it fails. There's no pricing mechanism. There's no profit and loss. And I don't know about you, Hannah, but I've failed a lot. I still fail all the time. And, and, and that's what I learned from the most. And so if we're not going to have these failures, how the heck are we going to learn, Hannah? Yeah. I mean, as they say, no bailouts in capitalism, right? <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, that doesn't seem to be the the stance that many people are taking. Failure is a good thing. Failure is good for you on an individual level. It's good for people at a corporate level. I mean, I think failure, as we said earlier, can lead to innovation, to growth, to new paths. You don't know we're there. The same is true in the market, right? Letting companies fail, letting failure occur. That's a good thing that opens up room for innovation and for smarter, faster, quicker people to enter. And ultimately, consumers just continue to benefit and benefit and benefit. But I do think you're right that there is increasingly a lack of trust in capitalism. Um, but I, you know, I blame the people who use the term disingenuously more mm. than anything for that, because yeah. you talk to the average young person and you ask them their opinions of capitalism, they're abysmal, which is awful and terrifying. But then if you ask them to define capitalism, the language that they'll start giving you it's not capitalism. And, and the things that they're mad at, they have every right to be mad at, right? They're mad at like corporate welfare. They're mad at bailouts. They're mad at, you know, the rich getting special privileges and special tax loopholes. They're mad at all of this like corruption 
and regulation, they're mad at things like inflation. Now, they don't know how to trace that back to things like the Federal Reserve and their spending policies and their printing policies. But ultimately, that is what they're actually mad at. And so the the problem that I think people like you and I have is we need to do a better job of educating people about just common vernacular, right? Like that's that's good that you're mad about that. You should tell your politicians you're mad about that, but that's not capitalism. You're not mad at capitalism. You're actually mad at things that the government's doing that hurt capitalism. And if we could, you know, get to a better common understanding of the root cause of problems, I, I think we'd be on much better footing. And, you know, as I said in my bio, that is the impetus for base. That was why I launched my show based. I was very convinced after working on numerous public policies as an organizer and as a lobbyist and activist that there was a lot we could come together on if you talk to the rank and file people on the left and right right like most people are not happy with where either party's going i think it's less than 25 percent are diehard democrats and less than 25 percent are diehard republicans and most of the rest of us over here are just in the common sense middle um you know the the past couple elections none of the above has actually won the popular vote people are not co-signing much of this but there's not been an organizing sort of impetus for them to really come together and start figuring out like, okay, we agree healthcare is really broken. How do we have common sense solutions to address it? And I feel strongly that until you do understand the root causes of problems, you're always going to be talking past one another and you're going to have very bad ideas for how to solve problems. So base is name based in part because I think it's important people get a base understanding of what's actually happening to them, what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, amen. I, I love it. There was a, also a good article on Hennecox launching a media startup and what real, young voters really want independent women's forum. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes page. And um, it's just fascinating the things that you're you're doing and continue to do, Hannah. And um, in our last couple minutes that we have here, do, do you do you see signs of optimism for the future? Or do you think that things are going to be more dire for a while and then we need to pop back up? Or, or what's your view about the future? Yeah. Well, most days <laughs> I ascribe to sort of the Martin Luther King Jr. way of looking at things uh, that, you know, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. I think you have to believe that to keep waking up and doing this. If I just got really nihilistic with it, I don't know that I'd have the same energy. Now, that being said, I do have some of those days where I'm just sure. like, burn. it's all going to burn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I think there are some big hurdles. Like, I don't think anything major changes until we get rid of the two-party system. I think it is fundamentally essential that we break that down. And so I think that is a huge target of mine, constantly helping people just understand how problematic those parties are behind the scenes and how much they've done just to rig everything in our system, how how little choice you actually have. You know, I, I had an episode of BASE, my original series that I think did better than any other episode that was called American Elections Legally Rigged. And it was during the time that all this Trump, you know, stuff was out there claiming the election had been stolen, which of course it had not. Um, and pushing back on that, but also saying, but your elections are rigged, right? They are rigged very fundamentally by the two-party system, which which candidates you get to see, who you get to hear from, who's on the ballot, where your taxpayer dollars go, what primaries they fund, who's on the debate stage, all mm -hmm. of this is rigged. Um, and so I think that that is something um, needs to happen for there to really be the scale of change I'd like to see in this country. But that being said, there's still reason for optimism in the short term. I think, um, you know, issue advocacy is is where it's at. That's where I focus most of my attention. I've gotten a lot of bills passed. I've stopped a lot of bad bills from getting passed. And I've done that as just, you know, a single little girl out here. So I think that there's there's plenty of opportunity to make an impact and a difference. And that that is cause for optimism. But I think the be the best way to do it to me as somebody who's, you know, unaffiliated and doesn't really feel at home anywhere in the camps that are out there right now 
is to focus on issues you care about piece by piece, go in, work at the state level, work at the local level, maybe work at the federal level, but you need a lot more money to compete there. Um, and, you know, just start to slowly try to break these things down and build coalitions of people that can come together and get things done. So to me, that's invigorating. And, you know, I see that kind of progress happening every day. I see people's minds and, and their hearts changing every day. You know, I work in media more so than public policy now, but with our content, you know, we we constantly see people in the con in the comments saying, you have changed my way of looking at this, I've changed my viewpoint, I've become more aware of this. So all of that is definitely cause for optimism and to keep trying. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, we'll keep that going. Um, and, and look for the, for the audience too. I mean, Hannah talks a lot about a lot of things. And you know, on this on this program, we talk about a lot about fiscal policy and and monetary policy and and things of that nature. And um, but there's also the death penalty. She talks about that, and just a lot a lot of key things that you should definitely go um, and and check her out on Twitter and other places. And I'll put some good you know sh um, links in our show notes page for all of that. But with all that said, Hannah, thank you so much for being on the Let PO Prosper Show. God bless you and um, your family and your dog there. And um, continue to do the great things that you're doing. Thanks so much, Vance. And back at you. Just really appreciate all the work that you do. And it's, it's always just good knowing there's other happy warriors fighting out there. So excellent. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's keep it going. Um, for the audience, please leave us a five-star rating as we continue to, to work on these big issues and um, share it with your friends and family. And until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>